Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. And just as a reminder, I will finish by saying this is the word of the Lord, and your response will be, praise be to God. Now as, now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing, and showing tunics and other garments the darkest had, Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let me open us with another word of prayer. Jesus, as we, as we may you quiet our hearts and our minds to be able to hear what it is that you want to speak to us. Help me to speak as clearly as I can. Pray that we will all be listening for the voice of your spirit, which is the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ calling to us. Oh, may we hear. And in hearing, may we be changed. Pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home uh, my parents loved the Lord, grew up going to church. And one phrase that I would often hear in churches uh, to describe what it means to be a Christian is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you grew up in a Christian home in America, you, you've heard that phrase before. And oftentimes it's asked, you know, do you, do you have a relationship with God or do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Um, and then I, I went to college, and I went to a Christian college as a, a long legacy of kind of a rich intellectual tradition and academic rigor, and I found out that it's no longer intellectually fashionable to talk about Christianity that way. It's too emotional, too subjective, too much the feel of Jesus is my girlfriend. And you know, we, we, you know, when we talk about the Christian life, we talk about theology and philosophy and church history and um, the life of the mind and tradition and all these things, that's all really, really good stuff. 
But being a moldable young person, of course, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid, and I would kind of make fun of this kind of overly emotive ways of talking about what it means to be a Christian. But as I grow older, older, as I say, I'm not as young as I once was, I'm realizing there's actually something very profound and very true in, in describing Christianity as having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It makes me think of this story I read once about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor in World War II, one of the German pastors who opposed the Nazi regime. And he started an underground seminary. He had a bunch of young, bright uh, Christians preparing for the ministry. And one day he was talking to a few of them and he just asked them, do you love Jesus? And, and, you know, not only are they like intellectuals, but they're German, right? So, they're like, what do you mean we believe in Jesus? That he is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, of the same essence as the Father and the Son and the Spirit? And Bonhoeffer's like, no, 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 no. I said, do you love Jesus? Again, I love the life of the mind. I love reading. I love thinking. I think it's valuable. But at the end of the day, we don't worship an idea. We don't worship a concept. We don't worship a thought. But we worship a real person. A person who lived a life, a real human life, who died a real human death, but then he rose again, which means he's still alive, which means we can interact with him and have a relationship with him, similar in some ways to how we have a relationship with any person, of course, different in other ways, but he really does speak to us and we hear him and we speak back. He's present to us. And this is a large part of what we're seeing in these two stories this morning. It may not be obvious at first, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to bring that out. That as Peter goes to the churches in Lydda and in Joppa, yes, Peter is faithful, but, but the main action of what's going on in that story is that Jesus has come to these churches. And where Jesus comes, he brings healing and new life. Jesus is present among us. And of course, also what we'll see is that the church is also, or sorry, the Spirit is also preparing the church for Acts 10, which is when the first Gentile family becomes Christian. And he's preparing the church to be able to accept that by showing that Jesus really is present with Peter as he does these ministries. And therefore, when he goes to Cornelius, this is the work of Christ, not just the work of some human. But again, Jesus' presence among his churches. So our outline for this morning is first Peter's ministry and Jesus' presence in Lydda. Again, Peter is faithfully ministering, but the point is that Jesus is present. Second point, Peter's ministry and Jesus' presence in Joppa. And then third point, preparing the church and Peter for the Gentile mission. So first point, Peter's ministry and Jesus' presence in Lydda. Let me read for us again, 32 to 35. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. It's interesting, we get a picture of Peter's ministry. We were told last week that the church is in a time of, of peace and safety. They'd gone through this season of persecution where they were running for their lives. That's come to an end. So now Peter's able to leave Jerusalem in safety and go and visit the Christians in, in the churches that surround in the countryside in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is for most of Peter's ministry until this point, we've seen Peter the evangelist, uh, the one who's been commissioned by Jesus Christ to be a witness of his resurrection. 
But here it says that Peter is going to the saints who lived at Lydda. Here we see Peter the pastor, who's going to the Christians who live in Lydda, probably because they fled Jerusalem during the persecution, and he's going to be a pastor to encourage them, uh, to build them up in the Lord. And, And at Lydda, we meet this man named Aeneas. Now, it doesn't specifically tell us that Aeneas is a Christian, but I think we're supposed to assume he is. Uh, For one, it says that Peter goes to the saints at Lydda, and that's where he meets Aeneas. Second, when a lot of people turn to the Lord because of the miracle here, it doesn't mention Aeneas, and I think that that would be mentioned if he wasn't a Christian. So I think Aeneas is a believer, but he is a man who has not gotten out of bed for eight years. He's bedridden with some kind of paralysis. This is not a man who has a tweaked knee, or who's suffering from some kind of psychosomatic disorder, he's, he's paralyzed in some way. He has not been able to get out of bed for eight years. And just the facts of the story, Peter shows up, tells him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed, and the man has the strength to not only get up for the first time in eight years, but he has the strength to, to make his bed. A profound statement of being able to care for himself for the first time in eight years. That's the facts, right? If you think Sherlock Holmes, just the facts, Watson. What's going on behind the scenes? Well, again, the point of these miracles is not Peter, although he's faithful. The point is that in Peter, Jesus Christ has come. He has come close. If you remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, he made a promise right before he ascended. Um, we promised his, his followers, behold, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. Here's churches that have gone through persecution, isolation, struggle, trial, So Jesus is reminding them that he really is present with them. He's near to them. He is the one who is healing. And we see this in a couple different ways. There's a really clear parallel in this story between this healing and a healing that Jesus himself does in Luke. It's a very well-known healing. You probably know of it. But where Jesus heals another man with paralysis. And that man was a man who had had friends who wanted to bring him before Jesus. and, And Jesus was preaching in a house that was so packed they couldn't get in the door. And so the friends dig a hole in the ceiling of, of the house and they lower the man down right in front of Jesus. Like, gonna have trouble missing that one. And Jesus heals the man with paralysis. And what he says to that man is, this is Jesus. He said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Very similar to what Peter says to Aeneas. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. It's a very clear parallel. The, only, the major difference, though, is that Jesus says, I say to you, rise, make your bed, go home. But Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. What he's saying is it's the same Jesus who is just as present as he was to that man in Luke 5 in his earthly ministry. He's just as present now to Aeneas. And we're starting to get a sense of why Jesus wasn't lying when he told his disciples, it's better if I leave. Because when he was here in person, he could only be in one place, but now by his spirit, he can be present to every church. The church in Lydda, the church in Joppa, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, and the church at Vine Street Baptist Church. Jesus is present and he's healing. And what's beautiful is I think we see part of Jesus' heart in this healing. Why did he heal Aeneas? Right, I mean, we read about Paul's miraculous conversion, and that kind of makes sense. He's Paul. He's going to write part of the New Testament. It's going to be this great church planter. It kind of makes sense that Jesus would like go above and beyond 
for Paul, but this is Aeneas. We've never heard of him before. We'll never hear of him again. It doesn't say that he's a leader in the church. Yes, people come to Christ through this, but Jesus could have done that in all kinds of other ways. Why did he heal this man who'd been bedridden for eight years? And I think it's because Jesus' heart is full of love for Aeneas. And he has compassion on this man and his suffering. Um, part of Marco's field of specialty is, is spinal cord injuries. And she's told me that it's just very, very common for people with paralysis to be depressed. And it makes sense. When, you're, when you have various kinds of paralysis, oftentimes you can't care for yourself. You can't do basic things for yourself. Um, and it can erode your sense of dignity. And that's today, with all of the incredible technologies we have, like motorized wheelchairs and handicap-accessible lifts and all these things that improve the quality of life for someone with paralysis. Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have any of that. I mean, when it says the man had been bedridden for eight years, he, he probably really hadn't left his bed very much for eight years. Jesus cares. He not only heals this man, he restores to him his dignity. We see the deep love of Christ for the down and out. And here's the thing, y'all. It's communicated through Peter's faithfulness. This is the beautiful thing. We see the heart of Christ, but oftentimes Jesus manifests himself to us through other people, through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, yes, but it is a relationship by faith. Peter says, although you have not seen him, you love him. I love that phrase. And although you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We don't see Jesus now, but, so we follow him by faith. But Jesus now becomes physical and visible through the love that we share for one another. And maybe you've experienced this. And a, a brother, sister in Christ just has a word of encouragement for you in a season you needed it. And it just is like a healing bomb on your soul. Or when a brother or sister just sits with you in your pain and your confusion and your heartache, and in that person you sense the presence of the man of sorrows. Jesus is present in this church and he's present through the ministry of Peter. What an honor and privilege it is to be able to be the presence of Jesus Christ to another person. But we must never forget that only Jesus is sufficient for that. And it's not about us in those moments. It's not about Peter and the healing of Lydda. It's Jesus Christ who does it, and so all the glory goes to him. And we see this in verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That's so intentional. It doesn't say they therefore turned to Peter and said, Peter, you're awesome, don't go anywhere. They see this miracle, and clearly Peter did this in a way that was clear that this is Jesus Christ. I mean, he says, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. And so the people turn to Jesus, and they worship Jesus, not Peter. Christianity in America, almost from the beginning, at least since the Constitution, has existed in a place where there, there, there is no established church. There's no state church in America. There are no churches that receive tax, you know, income from the government, whatever. And so American Christianity has grown up in what you could call a religious free market. 
where you can worship anywhere you want, and it's totally up to your choice and, and your preference. And so churches can, can, you know, if they put together a slick package, a, a, a very charismatic leader, you know, if they put together a good product, they can gather clients and customers. And there's, there's nothing wrong with preaching a good sermon. And I, I try my best to preach engaging sermons that, that glorifies God. But let's just never forget that the work that is done in a church, it's never a person. Even Peter, the apostle, nothing to do with him. It's Jesus Christ who is doing the work. And never forget that long after I'm dust and you're dust and this building is dust and whatever mega church is impressive is dust, Jesus Christ, if he tarries, he'll still be building his church, raising the dead, doing the impossible. Jesus alone is worthy of your worship. Give him all your trust. Give him all your love, all your praise. Because he's good. He's so good. First point, Peter's ministry in Jesus' presence in Joppa. Second point, Peter's ministry in Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter's ministry in Jesus' presence in Lydda. Second point, Peter's ministry in Jesus' presence in Joppa. Let me read verses 36 to 43 for you. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tamer. And here again, we have another healing from Peter. Of course, this is not just a healing, but it's even more impressive, bringing someone back to life. It's not a resurrection. We want to be careful about how we use that word. It's more of a resuscitation, because Tabitha will die again. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose to never die again. And one day when we rise from the grave, it will be to never die again. Tabitha's death is just delayed. But still, Jesus, or sorry, yeah, Jesus and Peter resuscitates Tabitha and brings her back to life. This happens in Joppa. Joppa was about a, so if, you know, if Jerusalem's here, I'm gonna go, Lydda's in between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, and then Joppa's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. About a day's journey and Joppa, if you know your Old Testament, was a city that Jonah fled to when he was running from the presence of the Lord. And here's Peter coming to Joppa in the presence of the Lord. Just a beautiful contrast. And again in Joppa, we meet this woman named Tabitha, or her Greek name would be Dorcas. And she's, uh, we're told a couple things about her. First, we're told that she's a disciple. It says, um, you know, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. A disciple is a learner. Someone who learns of someone else, and of course, she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And John Calvin comments this way, says this, in, in terms of referring to Tabitha as a disciple, this is the highest commendation. This is the beginning of a holy life. This is the root of all virtues. What is it? To have learned from the Son of God the way to live and what true life is. And she's a woman. It's interesting, and when we have discussions on women ordination, et cetera, one of the things that we sometimes forget is that most people are not called to be pastors. Most men and women, regardless. Every Christian, though, is called to be a disciple. Every Christian is called to be a theologian, to study the scriptures, to think deeply, to know God, to grow in our understanding and our wisdom. And in fact, Paul puts it pretty explicitly in 1 Timothy 2.11, he says, let a woman learn. That's an imperative, a command. We typically get hung up in that verse because it finishes with in submission or in quietness and full submission. That's just how everyone learned in the days, in those days. In ancient Rome, right, they did not appreciate group discussion in the way do in the way we do. Everyone learned in quietness and submission and in our men's discipleship reading Augustine's confessions. And Augustine leaves a city because his disciples are not learning in quietness and submission. That's not the point. The point is that Paul says, let a woman learn. And the reason why Paul says this is because the church needs the theological and spiritual insights and wisdom of our women. Sisters, be a Tabitha. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Learn of him. Second way that Tabitha is described though is that she's committed to helping the poor. So that she's known for her good works and her acts of charity. Basically, Tabitha is a woman who's marked by the two greatest commandments of scriptures. Love God with everything you have, being a disciple. Loving your neighbor, her acts of charity and good works. And it's interesting, we see the legacy of her life when Peter arrives at her bedside in the upper room. When you read it, it says Peter gets there, and there's all these widows, and you're like, that's weird. Why are there widows here? Well, if you remember, I've mentioned before, widows, if you didn't have kids to care for you, were the most vulnerable populations in the ancient world. There weren't work opportunities, there weren't social safety nets, you often starved. And so when Peter arrives, and there's widows that are weeping around Tabitha's bedside, these are the, those are the women that Tabitha had been pouring her life out and ministering to. She'd been making clothes for them. And so they're weeping at her, I mean, that's like her legacy is the people she's been caring for and ministering to. It's a beautiful picture of of Tabitha's ministry to the least of these. And lastly, let's never forget that Jesus loved Tabitha. And And we know her name and who she is because of the story, but again, she's never mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, She clearly had a reputation in in Joppa among the Christians, but I don't think she was probably known outside of that. But Jesus loved Tabitha, and Tabitha dies. What a blow for the church. I mean, we can see that in that when she dies, the disciples send for Peter, right? Like, who's gonna take up her ministry to the widows and the other poor that she cared for? Who's gonna replace her leadership in the church? I mean, she's a... She was a pillar in this church, and now she's dead. Let's never forget how terrible death is. Some of you have been at Vine Street for many, many decades, can remember the many saints who have sat in these pews, who've served faithfully 
and are now gone. And you, and you may remember where they sat, and you may remember their mannerisms and how they prayed and how they sang, and, and you miss them. Death is a terrible thing. It's a result of the fall, and no matter how our culture may euphemize death, it remains a terrible thing. But here's the thing. Jesus conquered death. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he came to pay for our sins. That was part of what he did. He came to answer that big question of how can we who are sinful have a relationship with a God who is holy? And he answered that by dying on a cross and taking our punishment upon himself. But there's a second question he came to answer, and it's what do we do about death? Because we're all gonna die one day, and all of us know people who have died. And Jesus Christ answered that when he rose from the grave. And that was Jesus conquering death. So that wherever Jesus Christ goes, death begins to work backward. And Tabitha, again, she's not resurrected, she's resuscitated because she will die again. But one day, death itself will be abolished because Jesus Christ has conquered death. And this is the great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory. It's not just that death is postponed or death is kept at bay. It's, it's done, swallowed up. And so Paul can say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? So again, weeping may last for the night, but joy will come with the morning because Jesus Christ is alive. And again, we gotta remember, this is what we have in the story that is Jesus who is doing this, who is bringing life. Now I wanna make a quick qualification, which is this. If Jesus doesn't heal us, if he doesn't raise a loved one from the dead, that doesn't mean that he is somehow absent or that he doesn't love us. We gotta be very clear about that. Because sometimes Jesus chooses not to heal. And in those instances, when he doesn't heal or when he doesn't answer our prayers or when he seems absent, what we do is we interpret those experiences through the lens of what we see here, of Jesus' heart for Aeneas, of his heart for Tabitha, that he loved them. And so when he seems absent, well, we know it's not because he doesn't love us, because we see that he loves us in his scriptures. And those moments we walk by faith. And we know that what Jesus does is good. But in this story, Jesus does heal. And in this story, he does raise Tabitha back to life. And again, the point is not Peter's abilities, but it's a reminder to the Christians in Joppa that Jesus has come to them and that he's present to them. And if he's present to raise Tabitha back to life in that huge and very conspicuous and miraculous way, what that means is that he's also present in a thousand other smaller, less conspicuous ways. Jesus Christ is present to us in the very slow and steady work of his word and his spirit. As Jesus convicts us and encourages us and forms us over years, Jesus is present when he strengthens us in the face of persecution and opposition. He's present when he comforts us in the face of grief. And of course, he's present in our faithful witness to him. This is so important. Again, 
we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which means he's present to us, which means he's here with us this morning as we look at his word, which means he'll be with you tomorrow morning when you wake up to go to work or to go to class or when you're home by yourself. The same Jesus is with you, and this is the great hope and comfort because we know how flimsy our faith is. We know how prone we are to wander. The risen Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, he's with you. And he is working. He is always working. So, uh, Peter's ministry and Jesus' presence in Joppa. Now I have to, I want to finish with this question though before we move to our last point. Why are these miracles here in Acts? When you read them, they seem a little bit out of place. Like Peter has done miracles before. These same truths of Jesus' presence to his church are communicated in many other places. Why is this here? And the reason is because of what comes in Acts 10, which is the first conversion of a Gentile and his family. And it's not just a Gentile. Oh, no. It's a Roman centurion. It's like a leader in the oppressive Roman Empire becomes a Christian and doesn't just make a profession of faith, but the spirit descends, which means that these Gentiles are now full members of the church. And that will prove to be very controversial in the church. And so Jesus is preparing the church for that. He's preparing them by showing that his presence really is with Peter. That when Peter goes to Cornelius and witnesses these things and brings that report to the church, that's not just Peter the man, but that is the risen Jesus Christ who is doing this. So listen to him. So this is our third point, preparing the church and Peter for the Gentile missions. Again, this, this whole Gentile inclusion, this is gonna be the most controversial issue from here on out in the book of Acts. Even after it's kind of definitively settled in, in, Luke, or sorry, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, it'll keep cropping up with people saying, you know, no, no, it can't mean this, or it can't mean full inclusion, or no, they have to do these Jewish traditions. It's gonna be the controversial issue from this point on. And, and it's hard for us to really place ourselves uh, and understand how shocking it would be for a Jewish Christian to hear that Peter, the apostle, went and fellowshiped with Gentile Christians. It's just hard for us to fathom that. We're actually gonna be starting a series on Judges in a few weeks. And one of the messages in Judges is that Israel failed because they failed to drive out the peoples of the land. And more importantly, they failed to drive out the pagan religious practices of the land. And so they began to compromise. And that was part of the, you know, that was part of the big theme of Judges and throughout the Old Testament is Israel is not being separated from the pagan idolatry and being separated to, separate to the Lord. But here's the thing is that was always for a purpose and the ultimate purpose was given to Abraham that Israel would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Israel had to be formed first to be a people holy to God to know Yahweh and his ways, and then go and take that to the world. But somewhere along the way, Israel forgot that first ultimate purpose, and which was supposed to be a separated from, to be separated to the Lord, just became a separated from. And that hardened into pretty blatant racism and hatred towards Gentiles. And so before Peter goes to Cornelius, 
God is preparing the church for this shocking thing by authenticating Peter's ministry. Miracles in the Bible oftentimes authenticate someone's ministry. So Jesus came, proclaimed the kingdom, and his proclamation was accompanied with miracles to show, hey, the kingdom of God really is among you. And what Jesus says needs to be listened to because Jesus is healing the sick and also raising people back to life from the dead. And in fact, we see in, old, in the Old Testament, again, there's, there's all kinds of uh, parallels. I don't have time to get into all of them, but one of them, Elijah, the prophet, raises a widow's son from the dead. Isn't that interesting? There's like, there's like five resuscitations in the Bible, okay? They're not common. Clear parallel. And when Elijah raises that widow's son from the dead, the widow says this, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Elijah's miracle authenticated his message. So again, before Peter goes to Caesarea and Cornelius and then brings a report of the Gentile salvation and inclusion into the church, before that all happens, Jesus authenticates Peter's ministry by giving him these miracles preparing the church for Acts 10. And to some extent, I think he's preparing Peter too. Right? I mean, Peter needed a vision from God to tell him, you need to go eat with this man. And he brings, he brings Peter to Lydda, which would have been a little bit more diverse than Jerusalem, but it was still predominantly Jewish. And then he brings Peter to Joppa, which was never a Jewish city and so Peter, maybe for the first time, this is in a city where it's majority Gentile. He's seeing them. He's having all kinds of stereotypes exploded. Jesus is preparing Peter as well for what he's going to do. So here's my question for us. Are we open as well to the movement of the Spirit of Jesus? I don't think we can draw a direct correlation between Peter's preparation and the way that we need to be prepared because Peter didn't have the scriptures. And part of what he's receiving at this point is revelation that will be scripture, okay? We don't receive that kind of revelation from God today. But oftentimes in the great revivals and renewals in the history of the church, it's been because Christians rediscover and begin to reapply what is in the scriptures. And every great revival also had Christians who resisted it because they weren't ready. They weren't prepared for what the spirit of Jesus was doing. So are we open to what the Spirit of Jesus wants to do in our midst? Are we open to having blind spots, our own blind spots exposed? Are we open to the new ways that Jesus will work in the years and the decades ahead? Again, C.S. Lewis wrote in his great Chronicles of Narnia, he says, you never get into Narnia the same way twice. We run into troubles when we think Jesus working in the past must be how he works in the future. He's going to work by his word and spirit in church. We know that. Oh, but there's a whole lot of other flexibility. Are we ready and, and prepared? That's why I think the, the life of a Christian is so best pictured as a saint on their knees. Because we humbly seek the Lord's face, knowing that we are easily deceived, knowing that we wander and we stray, and we desperately need the presence of Jesus to lead us and to guide us in the same way he's leading and guiding Peter and the church for we know not where to go. Jesus is present among us. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are present among us, that you come near, and in your presence there is healing and new life. 
Help us to know you. Help us to love you with everything we have. Open our eyes to your wonder and your beauty. Encourage us when we're down. Give us life when we walk in wilderness. And give us the faith to follow you no matter where you lead, no matter what you call us to, no matter what you ask of us. Oh, may we be your people. We pray this in the beautiful and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.